Welcome to Vertical Vision. I'm Ernest Finklia, and I'm really glad that you're joining me for this new podcast. Uh, the purpose of Vertical Vision is to pursue God's perspectives for our lives. And the way that we're going to do that is through in-depth study of God's Word and then seeing how the Lord would have us apply His Word to our daily lives. Uh, as we launch this podcast, the series that we're going to begin with is the person of Jesus. And I think this is really critical because the way that we understand a person has an impact on the way that we relate to that person. If we misunderstand somebody or have a limited understanding of somebody, we're going to relate to them with those, those hindrances or those perspectives. And we can't afford that with Jesus. We want to understand him to the fullest as best as we can. So we're going to start out with who Jesus is in relationship to his deity. And I hope that this study blesses you, encourages you, and helps you see Jesus in a much bigger light. Three questions. Who is Jesus? What's he like? And why does it matter? As we go through this study, my heart is that as we learn these things, we're constantly bringing it down to, that's great, but how can I put this in my pocket and take it home? How can I use this today in my life, in my circumstances and situations? I want us to be able to take our relationship with Jesus deeper, take him home with us, be with him all week long, and just absolutely enjoy a growing and richer relationship. This matters because the way that we understand somebody and what we know about that person dictates the kind of relationship we have with them, right? I mean, across the board, we can have our stereotypes, we can have our preconceived notions, we can have our preconceived ideas. We put people in boxes, okay, I know them, and boom, we relate to them according to whatever little box we put them in. But here, we can't do that, well, I take that back, we shouldn't do that with Jesus, but we do. And you might be in this class, you go, well, I, I know who Jesus is. Do you really? I understand who Jesus is. Do you really? And I'm not saying that in a condescending way because it's like, okay, I, 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 I know you. Okay, I think I, I don't know you. The more I delve in, it's like, oh my word, Lord. You are something else. There were a lot of people who knew Jesus and knew about Jesus. I've given you the little thing of all the verses because we are going to fly through the Bible. We cannot learn about Jesus without just doing a lot of scripture surfing, okay? So they're there. You can review them and go over them on your own, but uh, we'll be reading some completely. Others, we're just going to give the synopsis. But there are a lot of people, like I said, who know Jesus, knew Jesus, okay? Matthew thirteen fifty four through 58. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Jesus had been doing ministry. Jesus had been teaching and blowing people's minds with the word of God in ways that people had never heard or understood. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. And so he's at the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and all this stuff is going on, and the people that were going, 
Where did he get this stuff? What authority does Jesus have? This, this is the carpenter's son. We know his brothers, he had four of them, and his sisters, at least two. We don't know their names, at least I don't. Um, but So he's got at least six siblings. And he'd grown up as a carpenter in a poor carpenter's family. Where does Jesus get off teaching like this and having this kind of authority? And it says that Jesus could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. They were like, no, no, no. He's the carpenter's son. We know who he is. And it limited and hindered the blessings that Jesus wanted to give to his hometown because they put him in the box. You're just the carpenter's son. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus is teaching. The multitudes are crowding around him. They're being blessed. They're being healed. And his family comes to take him home because they believed that big brother Jesus was out of his mind. This is just our big brother, and now he's got a Messiah complex. Now he's making all this ruckus and everything. He's disturbing the peace. Big brother Jesus has some issues. He's out of his mind. We need to get him home. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. They know him. They've been ministering with him. They've been going around the countryside with him. They've heard him teach, right? And then the storm hits, and they're freaking out. And they're worried. And they're calling to Jesus, help us. And you know what happens. He stands up in the boat and he rebukes the storm and it becomes calm and still. And they say, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Jesus blew their box out of the water, literally. Who is this? Wait a minute. Time out. He's commanding storms, the elements, the sea. In Luke chapter 24, verse 21, the road to Emmaus. And they're walking to Emmaus, two disciples, and they're bummed out. And so Jesus just kind of pulls up beside them. What are you guys talking about? What's going on? Are you the only person, like in all of Israel, who doesn't know what just happened the last couple of days? Jesus died, and we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped, there's our box, this is what Jesus is going to do. But you know what, he was crucified three days later. And there's some gals in our group, and, and they're saying that he rose from the dead, but, you know, I don't know. And they had put the Lord in the box, we had hoped that he was going to totally crush the Romans, that he would set himself and his kingdom up and would rule in righteousness and glory and power. That's what we'd hoped. But it didn't work out the way we planned. Putting Jesus in a box. And any time we do that, we miss out on the vast power and beauty and majesty and person of Jesus 
And like these people, they actually limited his work in their lives because he didn't fit in their box. Or they confined him to the box. In this class, we're going to tear apart the box. We're just going to let Jesus be Jesus and see him and know him for who he is. And even then, we're going to only scratch the surface. In 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 6.18, Solomon's building the, the temple. And Solomon says, The heavens cannot contain God, how much less a building. John, when he wraps up his gospel, chapter 21, verse 25, he says, If we wrote down everything that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books. Now, he's exaggerating a little bit, probably. But his point was, what Jesus has done is absolutely incomprehensible. It is vast. The world couldn't even contain the books. So, if the world can't contain the books, if God cannot even be confined within the heavens, much less a building, we're only going to scratch the surface concerning Jesus, okay? But it's a, it's a good scratch. And it's going to be a blessing. So what we're going to begin with today is the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, what are the ramifications of that? We'll get into it. But the first thing that I want us to do is to kind of get our minds kind of locked into this. We need to understand the Trinity a little bit. And that's probably one of the most confusing things that uh, there is in church doctrine. How do we understand the Trinity? Where do we even get that? And, you know, people will say, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible. The word's not in the Bible. Of course it's not in the Bible. But the concept of one God being plural people is. So to begin, we're going to start with Jesus at the very beginning. And we're going to look at the Trinity, then we're going to look at his deity, then we're going to look at the intimacy that we can have with God because of Jesus being the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Okay? That's what the Bible says of him. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So who created the heavens and the earth? God. Who is God? The word there in Hebrew is very specific. It's a title, and it's Elohim. Okay? Elohim is the plural of God. So right out of the gate, when the scriptures begin, in the beginning, literally, gods created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, that's the title given to him. In John chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll look at there in a little bit, but it says that Jesus created everything and that there's nothing that exists that he did not create. The Bible tells us that 
He created everything and everything was made by him and for him. So he's the creator. And here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it lets us know that the Holy Spirit was there present at creation, hovering over the face of the deep. So the Bible tells us Elohim created the universe, everything. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let's go over to there. And this is when it comes time to create man. Then God, that's Elohim again, let us, that's plural, not let me or let I, but let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So right out of the gate again, when it comes to the creation of man, and man is going to be created in God's image, God is saying, let us make man in our image. So there's the plural. Right? Some people say, well, he's talking to the angels. I don't think, I I couldn't find any place in scripture where it says the angels are made in the image of God. It does say we are made in the image of God. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the spirit. He's talking to the son. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Now he's getting ready to make Adam. And look at the change here. Then the Lord, do you see the word there in caps, the Lord? Anytime you see Lord in caps like that, it is God's personal name, Yahweh. So now it's the Lord Elohim, singular, Lord, plural, Elohim, is what it says. Form the man of dust from the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And so there's a shift now when it's talking about Adam being made, and there is a relationship between Adam and God. God uses his personal name, Yahweh. And who's Yahweh? Elohim. Okay, everybody confused now? It's very specific, telling us that a plural God, who is singular, created the universe and had a personal relationship with Adam. All right? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. This is the last thing we're going to look at on this. This is what's called the Shammai. And it is a regular prayer in Israel, it's the, it's the passage that many, they'll put on their, uh, the phylacteries on their forehead, or it'll be on the doorpost, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Elohim, plural, the Lord is one, singular. You shall love the Yahweh, singular, your Elohim, plural, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So I bring this up because this is a concept that's in the Bible. 
And as we go further and we look at how Jesus talks about himself to the Pharisees, he is going to use terminology that links up with the things that we've just read. And they want to kill him for it because he says that he is God, not a God like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, but he claims to be God. I am. And they're not going to tolerate that, even though the scriptures themselves teach a pluralism, but it was something that was put away and pushed aside. It was confusing. It's still confusing to us today, but it's there. So there is this triune nature of God, and Jesus is God. So let's look at his deity, just a few verses here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about God making the angels and making, and, and, and then Jesus, uh, and not making him, but speaking of Jesus and making a comparison there. And in verse 8, it says, But of the Son, he, that's God, says, Your throne, O God. So God is speaking to God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is your scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And what is being quoted here is Psalm 45, 6 through 7. God is speaking to God the Son and laying this out. And then if you go on to verse 10... And again, God is still speaking. You, Lord, laid the foundation. And that's, that's a different word for Lord, okay? That's Adonai. Lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus is very different than the angels. Jesus is God. This is something that Jesus affirms. Let's turn over to chapter 5 of John. John 5, verse 17 through 18. So this is what's the backdrop here. Jesus has been healing people. Jesus has been healing people on the Sabbath. And the legalistic Pharisees are like, how dare Jesus be healing people on the Sabbath? That's the Lord's day. We're not supposed to work at all. How dare he do this? Who does he think he is? And so verse 17, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking to, all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood very well what Jesus was saying. You're saying you're equal with the father. We're not going to tolerate that. If we go over to... John chapter 8, verse 58. 
And the book of John is actually a book of the deity of Christ. That's what John is showing and affirming all throughout this book, okay? So chapter 8, verse 58 and verse 59. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He was talking about how Abraham longed to see his day, Jesus' day, and saw it. And the Pharisees responded to him, it's like, what do you mean Abraham saw your day? You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus' response was, before he existed, Abraham did. I am. He did not say I was. Some versions of the Bible say I am he. That's not a correct translation. It is specifically I am. He uses the term that God used when Abraham or when Moses said, Well, who should I say sent me? When I go back into Egypt and say, you know, God says we're supposed to leave, who do I say? And God says, You tell them I am sent you. So when Jesus says, I am, okay, he's not saying I am something, he's saying, I am. And they wanted to kill him because he made himself out to be God. And then the last one here, it's not on your your uh, sheet, but John 10, 27. Let's look over there. Listen to what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Go back, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, singular, your Elohim, plural, your Lord, singular, is one. Ahad in Hebrew. The Father and I are one. What do they do? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me for? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus is God. We know the passage in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's not actually how it says it in the Greek. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the expression of God. And the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Not the Word was God, but God was the Word. That's how it is laid out in Greek. So it's very emphatic that Jesus is God. Okay, so if you're like me, I'm looking at these things, and I'm going, all right. So, Jesus, you're God. What am I supposed to do with that? What does that mean for me? What can I take 
and use in my life. What does this mean? And what God really put on my heart and brought to mind was, if you take Jesus out of the box of Savior and let him be who he is, the blessings and the understanding of life and God and getting through things in this life just grows immensely. This is about intimacy. When you look at the Bible, and next week we're actually going to look at Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? When he was talking to the guys on the road to Emmaus, it says that he started with the law and the prophets all the way through and taught them about how he had to die and rise again. Jesus says, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. The entirety of scripture is his story. And the intimacy and the relationship goes all the way back to the beginning in the garden. When God made a man and a woman and used to walk in the cool of the morning with them. It wasn't like, you know, he was just this ethereal entity that floated around out there. God went on walks with Adam and Eve. Think about that. Why? He made a relationship. He initiated the relationship. And you look through the entirety of the Old Testament, and God is initiating a relationship and making a relationship and intimacy possible through the sacrifices and the priesthood and all these things ultimately pointing to Jesus who would restore relationship between a fallen people and their God so we could have relationship. This is a religion. There is a living, mighty, powerful God who came in the flesh to facilitate and enable a personal relationship with him every day throughout the day and ultimately putting his very spirit, the very spirit who was in creation hovering over the waters, that same Holy Spirit indwells you and me and we are temples of the spirit of God. Wrap your mind around that one. God came to us in Christ and facilitated a relationship. John chapter 1, verse 14. Look at this. We know this passage. And the word, okay, that's that logos, all right, the expression of the essence of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now keep this passage in mind and go over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. This is speaking of Jesus. Now listen to this. In the context of what we've been reading, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay? So let's break this down. Jesus Christ 
was in the form of God. We do not have a word for that word form, okay? It's an essence. It's the, the expression. It's the image. And we'll see these words used throughout the New Testament concerning Jesus and God the Father. But he's, it's, it's kind of like logos, all right? So in the heavenlies, he is the essence of God, the fullness of God. When he came to be a man, he packaged that in a body and became the expression of God to us in a very tangible, relatable form. We're going to see just how relatable in just a minute. So he expresses the unfathomable God to you and to me in a package that we can get our minds around a little bit. And it says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped means to hold on to at all costs, to hold on specifically to a treasure that is so valuable to you, you're not going to let it go. So Jesus did not consider his position as the second person of the Godhead to be something that he was going to hold on to tooth and nail. Instead, he emptied himself. That word emptied, this is what it means. To take away the power and significance of something or someone. Jesus took away his own power and his own significance by choice. He took that away from himself and what did he take in its place? The form of a servant. He took on the form of a bond slave. Take this to when Jesus washes the disciples' feet and carry this on through. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the Almighty, the I Am, humbles himself and puts himself in a human body, becomes a servant of humanity, gets down on his knees, girded with a towel, and is washing the dirty feet of his followers. That's God doing that. That's God getting so personal, so serving, so loving. It's like, whoa. The disciples are like, Jesus, you're, you're the master. You know, you know, Peter's like, you shouldn't do that. And Jesus is like, if I don't do this, you have no part of me. Okay, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, we're, we're not doing that. Okay, just your feet. We're good, okay? But this incredible, eternal God empties himself, lays aside the significance and the power. How much? Well, he put himself in a little embryonic state in a young lady's womb, who at the time was just betrothed, not married. He entrusted himself to a poor, young carpenter named Joseph and his bride-to-be. In a little backwater town called Nazareth, that was just along the way between, it was on the trade route between Egypt and Asia. It'd be like if you're taking a cross-country trip, let's say you're going to go Milwaukee or Madison to, to uh, San Diego. Think of all the countless little stops along the way that you just pull off into just to get gas. They're not, they're not the destination. You might need to spend the night there. 
but you're just passing through. That was Nazareth. You know, that's why Nathaniel's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's just like a dumpy little town. You know, that's where you water your camels, get a bite to eat, and keep moving. And you're saying, the Son of God is there? The Messiah? Yeah. He emptied himself of all significance. He put himself in a dependent place upon a young guy and a young gal. And then it says that he dwelt among us in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word there for dwelt literally means to pitch a tent. Now think of Jesus in the splendor, which we cannot get our minds around, okay? We get little glimpses in the scripture. But God, the Son, lays all that aside and he takes on a tent. The Bible talks about our bodies being tents. They're just temporary, temporary dwelling places. You may think about the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. If you wanted to connect with God, you went to the tabernacle. You went to the tent of meeting. You went through the priest. You could never go in, though. There were boundaries. But not with Jesus. With Jesus, in his tent, he parked his tent right in the middle of everyday life. And anybody could approach the tabernacle of the living God. Think about the people that were around him. Men, women, children, Gentile, Jew, Roman soldiers, rabbis, the average folk. The kind of people that Jesus was often seen with were tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. He would actually go chase down demon-possessed people and deliver them. The people that hung out around Jesus were not the cream of the social elite. They weren't religiously perfect. They were just lost, broken people. And that's where we find the great I am. In the midst of the rough and tumble. In the midst of the weak and broken and possessed and hurting and shattered. Yeah, he interacted with people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and, and others who were not, at least materially, in such dire straits. But spiritually, they were just as lost, just as broken. This is where we find Jesus. He ministered to people, but we put him in that box. Okay. Yeah, he did all these miracles and stuff, but he got really intimate with people and his life was very similar to what we deal with. Let's go to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Actually, we'll focus on that, but uh, do I have time to... I want to read this whole passage because it's really cool. Let's just do it. All right. Luke chapter... Where'd it go? 19, verse 10. Not 9, 10. There we go. All right. So we'll take it up at uh, just verse 1. No? I'm sorry. 18.35. This kind of just grew as I was looking at it this morning. So here's Jesus. Now, this is what's going on. 
Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's just let the disciples know for the third time, I am going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to be betrayed. I am going to be murdered and killed and buried. And I'm going to rise again three days later. He's laying it down. They're going up to Jerusalem. It's just a day out, basically, before the triumphal entry. And so they're coming into Jericho. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, he may be blind, but he sees who Jesus is, the king. Have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So this blind guy, formerly blind guy, now he's following Jesus. Where do they go next? He entered Jericho, so now they're going into the city. And he was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, okay, and rich. So this means Zacchaeus was just lower than dirt, okay? Because a tax collector worked for the Romans. And they were considered traitors, enemies of Israel, and they were hated by their fellow countrymen. And they also skimmed profits off the top and made money off of their fellow countrymen. So Zacchaeus is not in any way held in high regard. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, and I just picture the blind guy just taking this all in, he looked up and said to him, Jesus did, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. He's seeking hospitality from probably the most despised person in the area. I have to stay with you today, Zacchaeus. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody or anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The word for seek is this word, zeteo in Greek. And it means to hunt down something that is missing so that you can grab hold of it and take it to yourself and make it your own. That's what he's doing with Zacchaeus. That's what he's doing with us. And I was like, I wonder what Zacchaeus' name means. It means pure and justified. Zacchaeus was not living up to his name before Jesus. 
But Zacchaeus was living up to his name after Jesus. Because he had an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated. He knows what it's like to be vilified. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to experience wonderful things. The entirety of the human experience, Jesus knows firsthand. He came to be intimately connected to us, to seek and save the lost. So what can I do with that? Do you know, or have you ever thought about this? We don't see Joseph after Jesus is 12 years old in the temple. He's not at Cana when Jesus starts his ministry. So there's about 18 years there where there's no Joseph. And scholars believe that somewhere along the line he died. Jesus being the oldest would take on the responsibilities of head of the home. So here's Jesus. We don't know how old. You were an adult, you know, by the time you hit about 13. And Jesus is taking care of four brothers, at least two sisters, and his mom. He is a member of a single-parent household holding it together. It's a poor home. How do we know that? Because when Jesus was born and they offered the sacrifice required by the law, Mary and Joseph offered two turtle doves. That was the poor person's offering. And as I was thinking about this, and this is where it really hit me this last week, we don't know when Joseph died, but we do know that Jesus would have been working in the family business as a carpenter for about 18 years. So picture Jesus getting up in the morning, getting out of bed, and starting doing chores around the house. Taking things, care of things that need to be taken care of. And then maybe after some breakfast, he goes out to the shop to begin his work as a carpenter. This is God. You know, and I was, I, I have weird ways of thinking about things, but you know, I could just, I was picturing like Jesus making an armoire or Jesus making a home entertainment center, okay? And Mary walking in and going, what is that? It's a home entertainment center. What do you use it for? TVs, stereos, VCRs, DVD players. What's that? You don't need to know. Don't worry about it, mom. Why'd you make it? Because I can because I know how. You know, that's just, I, I think of just the dynamic that the creator, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the eternal one, the one who knows the end from the beginning, was out there making tables, wooden spoons, spatulas with his hands. Satan said to him, hey, you're hungry. Why didn't you turn these stones into bread? And it's like, man, Jesus could have just looked at a log and said, be a table. All right, I'm going fishing now. And how challenging would it be for Jesus to go fishing? Not too challenging, you know. But the unfathomable, limitless God confines himself to getting up in the morning, 
He didn't come to be a teacher in the most elite rabbinical school in Israel. No, he was a carpenter. And as I was thinking about this going into work a few days ago, I don't, I don't care for my job. There's other things I'd rather be doing, other work I'd rather be doing, other work that I think is more important than what I'm doing. And I grumble and I complain and I whine. Jesus had to get up every morning to go make things. He didn't complain. He didn't say to his heavenly father, why didn't you just put me in the rabbinical school and let me teach people? Why can't I just speak the plate into existence? I can make a manger a lot faster if I just say it. No. Every morning for 18 years, Jesus got up and toiled in the shop, dealing with customers who changed their mind. Oh, I want to make a change on that, Jesus. We've already done this three times, ma'am. You want to change it again? Okay. Did Jesus get upset with his customers? I doubt it. You ever think about Jesus just doing the normal everyday things we do? Whatever you're in right now, Jesus has been there. Whatever you're facing, maybe you're a single parent trying to raise a family, make ends meet. Jesus knows how that feels. Maybe you're tired of your job and you're worn out and you're wondering, what am I doing here? I don't think Jesus did that, but he knows what it's like to do real little things. When you can create the universe and you're making a wooden spoon, that's a little beneath you, but he didn't complain. Jesus is God. That means the almighty I am, eternal father, has connected with you and with me through Jesus who came in bodily form and gave his life as a ransom for us. So when you go through your day and your week, you can go and understand that Jesus knows exactly what you're facing. He will walk with you. He will guide you. He will lead you. He understands firsthand. And he wants to be with you. He came to seek you and to save you and to make you his own God-given.